The Great Lakes and Her Story can't happen without you. Go to patreon.com forward slash emorris to learn more. welcome you again to episode two of Great Lakes and Her Story. Um, we're uh, making some small changes around here. Pardon our dust. I think this is going to be a great thing. Um, this is what we've got planned. We're going to be incorporating some headlines of the region, the area, um, news of interest and such. If you've got stories you want to hear covered, uh, feel free to send an email to me at everett at churchstreetstudios.online. I would love to hear from you, even if you've got a story about a ship on the Great Lakes, one of your favorites, uh, something that you grew up with and uh, is sadly no longer, or maybe a museum that you would love to have covered. Um, man, that would make me so happy. I would love your input. So please, just send us an email, uh, everett at churchstreetstudios.online, and we'd love your feedback. So, here's some news uh, from around the area that you might just be interested in. This is coming from the Asian Carp Regional Coordination Committee. Now, they, they, they've got a committee. I love it. I want to be part of it. Um, although, I better watch what I say. I might wind up getting a phone call. Um, these Asian carps are bad news. Uh, they mess up the whole ecosystem of the uh, Great Lakes, and, and it's not helping things. And it's being recognized because this is a problem. And the, uh, they just recently uh, did an autopsy on an Asian carp caught just nine miles from Lake Michigan on June 23rd. And they found that this fish originated below the extra, uh, electric barriers. These barriers are the last line of defense before Lake Michigan. And the Alliance for the Great Lakes has released this following statement. Today's news that the Asian carp found just nine miles from Lake Michigan earlier this summer originated below the electric barriers means that the time for talk is over. The barriers are the last line of defense before Lake Michigan. This is the biggest warning signal to date that Asian carp are a clear threat to Lake Michigan. It is critical that all the solutions put on the table in the United States Army Corps of Engineers recently released Brandon Roadlock and Dam study from technology to lot closures must be examined closely. None of these options, including lot closures, should be removed from consideration. Despite mounting evidence that the situation is increasingly dire, Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner and his administration have obstructed progress every step of the way in efforts to implement additional protection measures to keep Asian carp out of the Great Lakes. With today's announcement, any stalling or obstructionism by government officials will clearly be placing all of the Great Lakes at a significant risk. As an immediate next step, the Asian Carp Regional Coordinating Committee must commence additional Asian carp monitoring of the Little Calumet River and the Chicago waterway system. You can go to greatlakes.org where I found this article to join the campaign or to have your voice be heard speaking out against the Asian carp situation. But on lighter news, and far more optimistic, 
Guess what? Great Lakes shipping numbers to top 2016. This article is from the Times Herald. Jackie Smith wrote the article published September 17th. Both local and regional industry officials said things are continuing to look up for seaway shipping in the Great Lakes. Traffic and freight handling will increase this year. Based on 2016 overall shipping tonnage, by more than 13%. This information coming from the Chamber of Marine Commerce. Chamber President Bruce Burroughs was optimistic, stating, and I quote, given the North American economic conditions, end quote, seaway cargo levels would ultimately top last year's performance. Dan Gallagher, president of the Port Huron-based Lake Pilots Association, stated piloting this year has increased 15 to 20% over last year, and 2016 showed an increase of the same numbers from the year previous. Last couple of years have been really good for us, Gallagher said. It's the U.S. economy. Great Lakes Steel, automotive is doing better, and of course it takes more steel for the vehicles. General cargo. The grain going in and out, that's worldwide. Our cargo is a little bit different than most of them domestically. So, good news there. And now the main topic. The main topic today is the Lady Elgin. Details are taken from Wood on the Bottom by Frederick Stonehouse and Shipwrecks.net article written by Brendan Baylid, and this is her story. The Lady Elgin was a double-deck wooden sidewheel steamer built in Buffalo in 1851 by Bidwell, Banta, and Company at a cost of $96,000. That's $2,961,942.07 in 2017. She was 252 foot long, 33.7 feet in beam, and 1,037 tons. The engines were taken from a Civil War slaver, the Cleopatra. The engines had a 54-inch cylinder and 11-foot stroke powering two 32-foot paddle wheels. The Lady Elgin was constructed with white oak frames with iron reinforcements and had a capacity of 200 cabin passengers, 100 deck passengers, 43 crew, and 800 tons of freight. Lord Elgin, who held the post of Governor General of Canada from 1847 to 1854, was honored by having the ship named for his wife. He was responsible for attempting to establish responsible government in Canada. Early in her run, she was found to be rather unlucky, as some would say it was due to not having an original engine as dictated by superstition. In 1854, she hit an uncharted reef south of Manitowoc, Wisconsin. No one was hurt, and the ship backed off on her own. In 1857, a fire scorched through the hurricane deck, and in 1858, after many days of work, she was recovered from the shore of Copper Harbor on Lake Superior. That incident was almost considered a total loss. In August of 1858, she had an incident in Lake Superior's Sable Point Reef while in deep fog. That cost an estimated $1,400 in repairs. During this time, Milwaukee was heavy in politics. Also, the slavery and state rights were a heavy topic. 
Granted, Wisconsin only had 40 slaves recorded in the census, but with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act by Congress in 1850, this caused an uproar. This act allowed a U.S. Marshal to obtain a warrant from a federal judge for the arrest of any slave deemed a fugitive. The slave couldn't even testify on his own behalf, and this did not sit well in Wisconsin. The pro-slave attitude was high in Wisconsin at the time. Juries would re return not guilty verdicts in favor of the slaves over the smallest detail. There were also a notable amount of slaves to escape slave catchers. One notable incident was the escape of Joshua Glover in 1852. He escaped his master making his way to Racine. Two others joined him and eventually got jobs in sawmills. In 1854, marshals were able to find him in a cabin. He was arrested after resisting and getting a solid beating by the marshals. Within 24 hours, 100 men were there to the jail to demand his release. When that didn't go to plan, the men got a large beam from the church under construction nearby and busted down the door to the jail. Joshua was then moved by horse to a boat, then transported to Canada. This was a popular location to escape to in the day. With the Civil War looming over the horizon, thanks to Wisconsin declaring war on the United States over slavery, Governor Alexander Randall was in the process, too, of creating the militia. President Lincoln frowned upon this and appointed Randall minister to the Vatican. That got him, got him out of the way. At that point, the ammunition was provided to Wisconsin by the government and placed under state control. That's when the state removed it from the company, thereby disarming them. All the other items used, uniforms, band instruments, furniture, and such, were all paid for by hosting events and banquets. The Union Guards, formed by Captain J. McManman in 1848 and led by Garrett Berry, were upset by having their munitions taken by the government. A congressman tried to get them back, but by this time the guards were not part of the militia. They would have to pay $2 each for their guns. The guards decided they'd raise the money on board the Lady Elgin with a banquet and a dance. After everyone boarded, the ship held between four to 500 people. After a Democratic Party rally to hear Stephen Douglas speak, the guards went parading, which then raised awareness to Randall's means, gaining sympathy along the way. At around 11.30 p.m. on September 7th, the nearly 500 arrived back to the ship. Captain Jack Wilson didn't want to set sail due to the weather, but within the passengers there were some who were pressuring the captain to set sail. Giving in... Lady Elgin headed out. It was around 2 a.m. that the waters began to buffet due to strong gales. She was on her way to Milwaukee, but the storms and the winds were making the travel near impossible. But even so, the Lady Elgin pressed on, seemingly undaunted by even the weather. The Lady Elgin was approximately seven miles off Winnetka when tragedy struck. A large shudder was felt through the ship forcing many to the upper decks to see what had happened. The two-masted Augusta was traveling to Chicago from Port Huron with a load of lumber. 
Under the command of Captain Darius Malat, she smashed into the port rear quarter, just behind the paddle wheel. Some witnesses stated that the Augusta cut into the ship. The impact caused the Lady Elgin to roll hard port, but then it evened out to keel. One major problem. It was far too late for the ship. She was mortally wounded. The impact caused the oil lanterns to go out, causing darkness and confusion. In that confusion, there was ill effort to evacuate. Some people stayed in their rooms out of ignorance or fear. One man ordered his family to stay in their room under the idea that it would be safer while he went out to see what had happened. His family would die because of that decision. Many efforts were made by Captain Wilson to keep the Lady Elgin afloat. Over 150 cattle were let off into the water. These were loaded in Chicago. The captain ordered the crew and passengers to the starboard side to raise the port, but this did not work. People were just too terror-stricken. The guards tried assisting in both moving people and iron stoves from the port side as well, but by this time the engine room had gained too much water. Crew members were set off the ship on a lifeboat to try to repair the side with sailcloth and mattresses. This was just not going to work. Once the ship started going down, it was fast. People gathered whatever they could to use as a flotation device, walls, doors, deck planks, and the like. In one last effort, Captain Wilson tried steering the ship to shore. Water eventually flooded out the boilers, and the ship lost momentum. The Lady Elgin was done. After the ship went down, an estimated 400 people had been able to stay afloat by using whatever was handy. The problem at this point was the storms were still hitting hard. A group of 100 people were able to hold themselves by using a section of the hull. Others were using whatever they could find. This was a short-lived victory. The waves were picking up whoever was floating on the smaller bits and throwing them against unforgiving rocks and reef, killing them. One lifeboat made it to the cliffs. The lone mate was able to make it up the cliff and alert those nearby of the wreck. By 8 a.m., students from Northwestern University were on site and able to assist victims. When Winnetka and Evanston residents heard, they arrived to assist as well. As an estimated 160 saved themselves, another estimated 120 died within 100 feet from shore. The two captains, Captain Jack Wilson of the Lady Elgin and Garrett Berry of the Union Guards, were able to survive and make it to shore. Captain Wilson assisted many before drowning himself just a hundred feet from the shore. His son, Willie, died in the wreck as well. After all was said and done, 350 estimated died and 160 survivors. But who was responsible? Captain Malat had stated the lights of the Lady Elgin were in the wrong order, and by the time she was seen, it was too late. Malat was reprimanded for not helping those on the Lady Elgin afterwards as well. Many feel he was lying to authorities when he told them upon arriving in Chicago that he was unaware of the incident, even though there was damage to the bow and sails. It was supposed that the second mate of the Augusta saw the ship but failed to inform the captain. The mate 
though, swore he did tell the captain. It was also heard that the captain stated he was under heavy sail during the storm, then gained control at the same moment of the collision. Two jurors found Captain Wilson partly responsible for not posting two lookouts, given the size of the ship. The question, even at that rate, was whether the lookouts would have been able to see the ship due to lighting and weather. Due to discrepancies in the stories passed down and in court, we may never know who is truly to blame, but as it is, 350 souls were lost. This was, at its time, one of the most tragic incidents, next to the wreck of the Eastland in the Chicago River, at a loss of 841 souls in 1915. And that is the story of the Lady Elgin. If there are other ships or areas, regions that you want to hear more about, send me suggestions. I would love to hear them. But trust me, I've got a lot of material to go through. Um, but send us an email at everett@churchstreetstudios.online. At We'd love to hear from you. Even if it's just how well or how happy this uh, show makes you feel, um, if you truly enjoy the history of the Great Lakes, um, I would love to know your story. If you care to support, if you feel that this show is of value to you, uh, please return that value to us. Go to patreon.com forward slash emorris and donate. Uh, we have different levels at $1, 3 and $5.00. And we would uh, love to have your support as well as, uh, you know, just a shout out saying, hey, thanks for the show. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. So I thank you for your time. I thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. If you could just spread the word to everybody around you and tell them all about it, I'd greatly appreciate it. This is Everett Morris, and this has been The Great Lakes and Her Story. This show is brought to you by Church Street Studios. For more, go to churchstreetstudios.online. Yeah, it is!